This episode of the podcast is brought to you by That Sober Guy Meetings. Go to thatsoberguy.com, click on the Live Meetings tab, and register for the next online That Sober Guy meeting. We have folks from Ireland, Canada, Boston, New York, all the way back to California that are joining in on these meetings. You'll get some great insight on recovery, addiction, alcoholism, all kinds of different topics to share to help you build your support group. I got a great guest for you today. It's Paul Churchill. Paul runs the Recovery Elevator, which is a website and podcast that he does based on recovery, alcoholism, addiction, and trying to stay sober. So without further ado, Paul Churchill. You're listening to That Sober Guy Podcast on Recovery Radio. Living one day at a time for a sober, healthy, happy life. For more information, visit www.thatsoberguy.com. And now, let's start the show. All right, today we're talking with Paul Churchill from the Recovery Elevator. What's up, Paul? How you doing? Hey, Shane. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great, man. We both just agreed that we're both fired up for this show. Um definitely very grateful to get the opportunity to uh speak with you and talk a little bit about recovery so absolutely that's uh what what i'm learning the hard way over the last decade is priority is priority number one is recovery and it's slowly notching up and surpassing other things priority over girls over wealth over over everything number one is sobriety yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And when we put that first, uh, at least in my experience over the last couple of years, um, you know, good, good things tend to happen. So um, it's definitely a positive thing. And like you said, one foot in front of, in front of the other, uh, kind of one day at a time type of thing. I don't think you said those exact words, but I know that's what you meant. <laughs> Pretty much one day at a time, right? And it's yeah. one of those cliches or metaphors that I just wanted to slap the person who said it to me when I was <laughs> was in the battle, right? When I was in the fight with alcohol, I would hear one day at a time. I'd be like, yeah, really? You really? Yeah, you one one go one day at a time yourself, right? But that yeah. is what it is, right? And I've heard incredible short memory. It's for alcoholism, the ISM, an incredible short memory. And every time I hear one day at a time right now, it's somebody reminding me, reminding myself, Shane, so you just reminded me. I'm like, oh, yeah, nothing is in the bag. It's really just one day at a time. And I say it all the time now just to remind myself. So it is one day at a time, Shane. I totally agree. It, it is. And uh, it's, it's kind of funny this came up right now, too, because I'm, I just was working on some T-shirts today for the podcast for That Sober Guy. And on the back, it says That Sober Guy on the front. And on the back, it says one fucking day at a time. So I don't know. Maybe that's a little little different there. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's that's how I felt when I when I was in it, right? I've I've uh, I'm I've been sober for nine months, one week, and three days, and and I remember the first month, week, and the first day, it was one fucking minute at a time, Shane. Yeah, it was one fucking second. When I quit drinking, the first seventy-two hours were one of the most it was one of the most brutal, miserable experiences I ever went through, right? And, and so yeah, it's one fucking day at a time, and <laughs> Shane, it's. It's a beautiful day in Montana on June 17th right now, but today I had one of those days where it is one fucking day at a time. It, it is, because 
if I had every day like this, I, I don't, I wouldn't even wake up for tomorrow, right? I would just stay in bed with the sheet on. But I know that today, that's all it is. It's just today. And today is tomorrow is a completely different day. Nothing is guaranteed. All I can worry about is today, the present moment, which is right now. And, and that's, it sounds like, you know, you had one of those days today and that's, the beauty of sobriety is we have to feel, we have to acknowledge these days that we have because it's not all, you know, um, it's not all great every single day. We got our ups and downs, our highs and lows, um, whereas now we can learn to deal with them instead of turning to that bottle. So, um, I mean, that's, that's just a great way to look at it is just I'm in the moment, just like you said. Um, so, Paul, let's kind of jump into a little bit about yourself, like where uh, you said you're, you said you live in Montana now, um, where take us back maybe when you were a bit younger. Absolutely. So I had my first drink, I think when I was 14 or 15 in Vail, Colorado. And my parents had just relocated there from Salt Lake city, Utah. And my dad was working at Snowbird, Utah. It's a ski resort. He got a job with Vail resorts, right? So we went from one uppity uppity area to another uppity uppity area up in Vail, Colorado. And the very first time I drank, I knew I had it. You know, I, I didn't, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I didn't stop drinking until I threw up that very first time, but I was on to something magical. Right? <laughs> None of my jokes were funny. I couldn't talk to any girls. I was always awkward. Well, holy crap. I found this alcohol stuff. It was incredible. And I just couldn't stop. And sure enough, I threw up and <laughs> the smell of the alcohol went through the vents of my buddy in my buddy's basement his parents found out about it and came down to just a shit storm of vomit on the ground. In fact, all four of us threw up. But that was it. I mean, I was kind of, kind of, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I was alcoholic from the very first drink. And I, I probably drank normally for six years, but I loved it. After that, I was kind of chasing that through all of high school and not chasing it. I was obtaining it in copious amounts in college, right? So I, was, I went to college and went to California at Chapman University in Southern California. And at the end, with my love and passion for partying and drinking and also being an entrepreneur, by the end of college when I graduated, I had a brilliant idea that I was going to go buy a bar in Spain. And sure as shit, when I get these ideas, I do them, <laughs> right? Yes. And, and, and that is exactly what I did. I went out there and I bought a bar in Spain, right? And that was the best and the worst thing how do you that say the name? It was Dolce Vita. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it was Dol- Dolce Vita, which, if you know Spanish, that isn't even Spanish. It's Sweet Life in Italian. Got it. And I went out there with a drinking problem. Of course, I was in denial. I would have never have gotten on the airplane and be like, hey, let's go buy a bar. Yeah. I got a drinking problem. This <laughs> it's a great idea. Great. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm an intelligent guy. This is one plus one is definitely an equal two on this one. So. Yeah, but I had no idea I had a drinking problem. I knew. I just loved to drink. And I was making decisions back then based upon drinking. For example, I wouldn't go to a party if it uh, didn't have alcohol. I wouldn't really do anything if if, if there wasn't a way for me to get shit-faced. Let's, let's put it that way. And you bet your ass on the very first day night behind the bar, yeah, I blacked out. But I was functioning, and I did just fine. That, what happened in three years, from 2005 to 2008... When I say it was the best time of my life, it was. I was owning my own business in Spain, a bar. There were, I had, I had a shoebox, of course I didn't have a bank account in Spain, but yeah. I had a shoebox full of thousands of euros. I was buying, dining, everything, but it was in my own little hell because 
slowly, but ever so surely, that switch was being flipped from me to casually drinking. Like I said, I went out there with a drinking problem, but that very quickly progressed. Yeah. Spain, I look at, look at it now as a blessing because what happened in three years probably would have taken 10 to 15 to 20 years in the United States, right? I'm not saying had I not have gone to Spain, I would not have been an alcoholic because that would have happened anyways, but I would have been dealing with this fucking one day at a time bullshit <laughs> in my 40s, 50s, or 60s, right? Got it. It, it. it just put the pedal to the metal and was like, all right, let's deal with this shit in our 20s. I'm in my early 30s. I'm still dealing with it. But I'm so glad that it's behind me. And Shane, you and I are talking on a microphone right now. I'm 33. I'm not 43 or 53 dealing with this shit. I'm not saying dealing with this shit. I probably still, I've always going to be an alcoholic and I'm always going to be in recovery. But I'm not in denial, right? I'm not ashamed about it. I'm moving forward with my life. And that's why Spain was a blessing in disguise. Now, the hardest part about it, that's who I was, right? Who's a, who's a bar owner who doesn't drink? Can you bet your ass I had many failed attempts at just that? <laughs> I'd go into Dolce Vita. Was that? Well, I was going to say you felt like that was your identity, I'm sure, right? Would that kind of, uh, I mean, that in, in a sense, I mean, not just, you know, the, the, the owner of this, of this bar in Spain, and this is what I do. I got a shitload of money in a shoebox. I'm partying down like I'm living the life. But at the same time, like you had mentioned, you're, you're kind of living in your own hell. You have no idea. I, I can only imagine how the Death Leopard drummer fell when his arm got cut or oh fell when God. his arm that's, got cut off. That's an amazing story. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just, I'm a drummer. I'm going to lose one hand and then I'm going to keep going. So that's who I was, right? And we would send so many people to the clubs. We didn't compete with the clubs because we were kind of a pre-party bar. And we would show up at clubs and it would be like, oh, that's Paul from Dolce Vita. Come on in. Here's your VIP bottle in a VIP room. God. And these clubs in Spain right? In Granada, Spain, some of them rival like these Vegas nightclubs. You know, I, I was DJed in front of 1,000, 2,000 capacity clubs. It was incredible. And I mean, I mean, I would just, I would drink until there was no alcohol left. Imagine how that was. It, it was just my own a little hell that nobody knew about. Nobody knew about it but me. Yeah. The, the secretive, uh, when it gets to that level where the secrets start and it's all, it's all internal and you don't want to share it with anyone partly because you don't want to, you don't want to share the booze. And then at the same time, there's feelings of shame and guilt. Uh, I, I went through similar feelings of that too, obviously not in Spain, but, um, it, it, it is, it's, it's literally, uh, it's depressing and it's just, it's like the worst feeling. Like someone just stabbed you in the heart. That's a very good feeling. It's an acute sensation that will all come to a point. And that is what happened actually with me to get, it was a catalyst that kind of got the ball rolling is I woke up when I would wake up in the morning, Shane, after a shift at Dolce Vita and I had a little bit of alcohol in my system. I was basically still drinking in my mind and I would walk right across the street. doesn't matter if it was 6 a.m. I'd buy more alcohol. And that continued one day till about 7 p.m. the next night. But I could feel like I was drinking a sensation away a sensation called anxiety, right? And I was just creeping up. But I knew that every time I would take a shot or a big gulp of beer or whatever, it would suppress that feeling temporarily, but it would work pretty damn well. And it, and it, it just came back so fast. And finally around 7 p.m., what later was just an anxiety attack, but I had no idea. 
I put on minimal clothing, just like gym shorts, sandals, and a t-shirt, went right down to the street, got in a cab, and was like, go to the hospital, I'm having a heart attack. Oh, wow. And he, he was like stopping at stoplights in Spanish, and like, dude, I said I'm having a fucking heart attack, man, let's roll. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's kind of a bucket list. I've always wanted to get in the cab and just go, go, go. go. <laughs> the shit you see and, in movies. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we got there kind of quick. I mean, the guy in the cab was just like, all right, this guy's a bum. He's definitely not having a heart attack. And I wasn't having a heart attack. I was having an anxiety attack, which was my body finally revolting to the injustices that I have been doing to my body. Your body will only tolerate so much before it shuts down and literally just like, Fuck you, Paul. You are a piece of shit. I, my body, not going to put up with your bullshit anymore. I'm shutting down, big guy. And that's what happened. I just, I hit a point and I, I was on my hands and knees in the hospital on a payphone, just like throwing Euro coins and just calling my mom across the seas, right? And, you know, imagine how, you know how much a payphone is to call like a local number. I was just like shelling five euros, 10, probably 20, 30 euro coins in this thing. Just, you have two seconds left. Shit. <laughs> Throwing money in this. Yeah. And I'm crying, right? And finally I went in the back. I think I got like a Benzo, a Valium or a Xanax. And what do you do? I was cured, right? And I quit drinking for I think four days. Mm -hmm. But you know what happened after that. <laughs> yeah, those four, it's that, that repetitive, I'm done, I'm done. And then a couple of days go by and you say, I think I got this. I'm ready. Let's do it again. <laughs> I think I got this. That's, that's got to be a slogan on one of your t-shirts. I classic. think I got this. Yeah, I think I got and it. And then on the back, like, no, you fucking don't. Yeah, no, you don't, bud. You don't got it. So what, uh, <laughs> so, so you're, so you're calling home. You think you've just had a heart or you think you're having a heart attack. You, did you realize it was an anxiety attack after obviously probably you went to the hospital? You're calling uh, home. Um, what ultimately brings you back to the States? That is a great question. And again, I found out the hard way. Like you said, I had a case of I got this. I can control this. I finally went back and I was back in the States for, I think, six months recuperating, controlling my drinking, right? Only on weekends. <laughs> yeah, you, you know the deal, man. I don't got to explain it to you. It's great. It's great talking to the other alcoholic if oh, you yeah. just get it. Yeah. And there was a semi-pro football team over there, and I I played Division three college football. I love football. And I had played on the semi-pro uh, football team. And, of course, I had a plan. All of us alcoholics have a plan, I said. If I go back and I really just focus on playing football and, and kind of just work the bar on the side, I think it'll be okay. And so I hit the weights hard, and, and I had a plan, and I went back. But guess what happened when I went back? I lasted two weeks, not even without drinking. I mean, I was just my plan was just to control drink. But I did control drinking, and then for about, you know, I controlled drink for four days, let's put it that way. And then, and then the wheels just came off, and I lasted about two weeks, and and then I made an intelligent decision, Shane. <laughs> I think I've only made a handful of those in my life, but I walked away, hmm. right? I just left. I told my, I had a business partner. He's a Spanish guy. And I told him, I was like, hey, I'm out. I'm sorry. See you later. There was, of course, more explanation than that. And it was yeah. very hard to do. I lost a lot of money. I was like, you know, I got to go. Or else I am going to die. Because a couple nights previously, 
I had a, I had a prescription for the plane flight. I had a prescription for like 30 Ambien. And if you know me, of course, you know me about Ambien. I'm sure you do. Uh, it's a very strong sleeping pill. Mm-hmm. I was given 30, and I think I was done with 30 in seven days. Let's just put it that way. Wow. Mixing alcohol with Ambien, that's exactly what I was doing. That's how Heath Ledger died. Yeah. I don't know if he did it on purpose or whatnot. That's how a lot of people, they just stopped breathing in the middle of the night. I mean, I would wake up in the morning and, you know, blacked out. Open the, or the next night, open the Ambien container and be like, holy shit, I had four Ambien's last night and a shitload of vodka. What What is yeah. going on? Dangerous. And, yeah, and, and that's where my body and my mind, there was a little bit of clarity where I said, look, maybe I don't got this here. I, I got this in the United States of America. I just don't got it here. So let's just remove ourselves from the situation. And I gave the old geographical cure yeah. a go, right? Yeah, and, and, and so I left. And I remember getting shit-faced on the way back on the airplane, thinking, I was looking out the window, drinking at the Atlantic Ocean, just thinking that my problems were behind me on an airplane. But this chapter of life had closed. It was, it, was, it was bittersweet. I had such a great time, but it was done. I knew it was over. But I was excited, Shane, because I was going to live a new life, alcohol-controlled, free, you know, and... Pretty soon, a couple months later, guess you know, guess what problem also was on that airplane with me? It was my addiction. That addiction was not in the same row or even in the same seat with me. It was like four rows back on the left. But my addiction eventually ended up catching up with me back in America, which, wow, was I surprised. Didn't see that one coming, but it did. <laughs> well, some of us get to that point a lot sooner than others, and some of us never get to the point where we realize, you know what, shit, it's me. You know, if if you meet one, if you meet one jerk in a day, that guy's probably a jerk. If you meet two jerks in a day, shoot, man, you probably just met two jerks. That's bad luck. If you meet three, it's probably you. Yeah, right. <laughs> like You're that. the one that's probably the jerk. Yeah. And that kind of what I slowly realized where there's one common denominator in all these problems. It's myself, <laughs> and it's it's this alcohol thing. So I gave. The geographical cure, one more go. I moved from Colorado up to Washington where I, of course, we were alcoholics and we had plans. My plan was to go to grad school, which would curtail my drinking. So that was my plan in October. But in October, November, shit just got real. It got bad. And I quit on January 1st. Go figure. I got shit-faced on New Year's and I quit. So I actually made it through grad school sober. And I made it for two and a half years with simply that, not drinking, which to myself and my friends and my family, we no one really knew I was an alcoholic. And I mean myself, I would never ever say to myself or to somebody else, even a close, even a close friend. And only my brother and my parents were the only ones that knew that maybe I had a problem with alcohol. So when I quit for two and a half years, it was just like, well, well, I wouldn't say I'm an alcoholic. I, I just don't drink. And that, that was it. But that's the problem. There, you're not really addressing the problem because it doesn't matter if you call yourself an alcoholic or not. I am. But there's three components to this whole beast called alcoholism. There's the physical part, there's the spiritual part, and there's the mental part. And simply not drinking 
I was only addressing the physical part. Does that make sense, Shane? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and one thing I want to touch on too, because you had, you had mentioned it a couple minutes ago, is the defeat thing. And for us as men, that's not in our blood. We're not taught that to admit defeat, to give up, to throw in the towel. And and so in in order for us to um, get some kind of clarity with our you know with our alcoholism, with our addiction, with this thing um, that we call both of those. You have to give up and you have to you have to have some humility and throw in the towel and admit defeat. So what this sounds like to you is you you were you were admitting that, yeah, I just you know, I don't want to drink. And I went through the same same exact thing. And it wasn't until I finally just like I I literally was was just like my hands in the sky, like I can't take it anymore. I give up, you know, so it sounds like at this point, that's not quite where you're at just yet. You're right. You are 100% correct. I, I was basically on maybe a half of a knee, right? But I was still ready to get up and sprint. Yeah. I wasn't fully, I wasn't fully given up. But that did happen on September 7th, 2014, where I was done. My ass was kicked. My hands were in the air. Both knees were on the ground, right? Just asking for help and saying, I'm done. I lost. I have been defeated. But, the ironic part about it, that is the only time where I felt a reprieve, where I actually felt I did have a shred of control. It might have been a thread of control or a small fishing twine of control, but mm-hmm. I felt something different. That's... I felt when I when I admitted complete defeat was when I felt I had a little bit uh, of power and hope. It was the strangest thing. I, what did you feel when it yeah. happened to you? No, I was just going to say that the same thing. I mean, it, it is, it's the strangest feeling because you feel like you feel like, you, you know, everything's telling you that you can't give up. You can't give this. And, and let's be real here too. A, a lot of us don't look at it for the face value of it because it's much deeper. The alcoholism, the addiction, all of these issues, most of us just like to fucking get drunk or do drugs, like be high. I enjoyed the fuck out of that. I mean, that that's what I like to do. So that was a whole other aspect of it. Like, damn, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do with myself? That's all we do is party. Like, that's all I know how to do. You were talking about, you know, so, being socially awkward. That's another thing in social situations. How am I going to respond to people? How am I going to laugh? Like all these different things going on. And you got to give all of that up, like everything that we've known for all these years. And at the strangest time, just like you said, um, when I did that too, it was just like the biggest feeling of relief that I had ever felt in a a very, very long time. And I think it was um, partly because I felt like I had just a little bit of control finally in my life. You you got to relearn a lot of things, right? I feel like it's one of those movies where your loved one wakes up in a coma or wakes up from a coma and they don't remember you and, and they need to re relearn all these memories and relearn to talk and to walk and, and all these things because that's how it is in early recovery and I'm still doing it today. You're out in a social situation. You know, I'm out in a social social situation and and someone says a joke and it's, and, and it's not funny and you're just like, oh, this is what it's like. Or, yeah. or, but it's, it's not all painful. You've just got to relearn a lot of stuff because... Yeah. There, I mean, this is, there's scientific testing behind it. Is if you were to learn a car while you were learn how to drive a car while drunk, the first time you get behind the wheel sober, you'll probably suck at driving sober, and that's a fact. Hmm. It's like your cognitive learning. 
you're going to go back to the state of mind where you learn that in. Stuff like people people say like, oh, you know, I was, I was really good, really, really good. You know, I could study high and I could do good at, good at tests. It's because you're high all the freaking time. <laughs> Every time you studied, you were high. Like, just give it a try sober. You have to you have to relearn it, but you yep. can definitely do it. And that that that's funny you say that. That was me. I did everything high from mowing the lawn to taking a shit. Like it didn't matter. Like I was always loaded. And I would say that too. Well, play basketball. Damn, I play way better when I'm loaded. You know, if I'm sober, man, I'm, I'm breaking everything. But really, it is. You, you just you get in that mode. And like, I don't even think I got high anymore at some points. It was just maintenance. You know, it was just what I did. Um, but I want to jump, I want to jump into something real quick. I listened to nine ways to say, uh, to stay sober in social gatherings, uh, without drinking when I was driving today. And I think it was number five. And we just kind of touched on this. It, it jumped in my head about how I thought this was interesting being in a social situation, whether it's with family, friends at a party, wherever you're at, there was some kind of science that, that you had talked about, about always having a drink in your hand, now, whether it's a soda water or, you know, um, a, a bottle of water, whatever it is, but having something there to cure like that anxiousness of, of not, you know, not drinking number one, but then trying to kind of fit in and be normal somewhat. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for taking the time to listen, Shane. That does mean a lot to me. It really does. And what that means, there, there are scientific evidence that even if it's a beer, alcohol, a, a beer, tequila, or, or a freaking squeeze it, right, a Capri Sun, your brain still associates something in your hand, right? And it's going to satiate those receptors. Another thing it's going to do, you've got way too much on your plate to just go to a social gathering, you know, and have like the Alanis Morissette song, have one hand in your pocket, the other mm-hmm. one giving a high five, right? Like, yeah. just don't even think about where to put that hand. You've got way too much on your plate. If you're trying to break a huge habit called not drinking, let's not break two habits of just not having something in your hand. And, it. and it's just little tips and tricks, right? And the other thing is, I, I usually have a ginger beer. One, I really like the taste, but in early sobriety, um, I, I would like to have a bottle, a non-alcoholic beer bottle, but I would turn the label in my hand. So people wouldn't be like, oh, are you not drinking? Let me buy you a drink. It's just you eliminate that one extra step or that one extra bucket. Yeah, yeah. I'll take that drink. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it's, that, it's that fifth person. It's not the one through four. It's the fifth person's like, oh, hey, can I get you a drink? And you're just like, fuck it. The DJ sucks. My friends aren't funny. My girlfriend's not cute. Yeah, I'll take a drink. <laughs> yeah. You're well, just eliminating one more opportunity to drink. I want to I want to also touch on number 1 of that list too because I I think that early on in sobriety especially uh number 1 is obviously the most important one and that's probably why it was number 1 but it's don't go you know don't don't put yourself in situations where you're going to be tempted uh especially early on uh in your sobriety you know if there's a if there's something that you're going to go do for the hell of it. And it's, there's no good purpose to be there. Then you probably shouldn't go because you're setting yourself up for disaster. Uh, Let me speak for myself. I, especially in my early sobriety, I would be setting myself up for disaster. um, If I put myself in those tempting situations, whether it's with old friends. Um, Now we jump into we can't run all of our lives. We can't run. We have weddings. We have birthdays. We have family. We have friends who can responsibly drink. So there has to be a point in time where we come to and we have some strength and, um, you know, we're comfortable with ourselves to be okay to do that. But 
um, I just wanted to kind of touch on that. And early on, don't put yourself in, in, in uh, shitty situations. 100%. Early, early on. And there are some situations that can't be avoided, right? A wedding, an anniversary, mm-hmm. your brother's engaged. You know, some of that stuff, you got to go. And you can't take a backseat and give a pass on that one. But in, I think, yeah, it was August of 2014 last year, right in the middle of my shit storm, I was at my fantasy football draft. Yes. And the only person, yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> got third place in that league. Nice. I'm a little upset about that. <laughs> Well, that's good, but yeah, let's shoot for the, uh, shoot for the top. <laughs> and I remember we went to a Denver Broncos and Houston Texans preseason game. And sure as shit, our tickets just had to be the very last seat on the very top row. And Shane, you can probably associate with this. You know that feeling when there's just beer sloshing in the cup, you know, like a bowl's getting passed around. You see it, and you know, like your addiction, it's not in the room. It's on your fucking back, mm-hmm. right? Just tap. Yep. Like, yeah, man. Here we go. And I knew I was going to drink. And I was walking up these stairs. I was looking right, looking left. I I just knew it. But the only person that knew it in the room besides myself was my brother. He didn't know I was going to drink, but he knew what was going on and the struggles. And I lasted one drive. And I think Peyton Peyton Manning, I think, threw one touchdown pass before they pulled him. And I left, right? I was sober. And I go, hey, I'm I'm going to go to the restroom real quick. And I just left. When I went out, I went outside that stadium and I sat down on a concrete, on a concrete bench, pulled out my phone, sent a text to all seven of my fantasy league football members. It was probably one of the hardest texts I've ever sent in my entire life. And it was just letting them in on a little secret called, I am an alcoholic. It was probably one of the best texts I have ever sent in my entire life because I found out I have seven incredible friends. One of them is my brother. And who I love dearly, but they all are incredibly supportive. And, you know, I, I wish there was a happy ending to this. I went back to the hotel room and I, I took an ambient and there was also 12 beers left over from the night before from the draft. And I had 10 beers. No, wait, I had all 12. Yep, I had all 12. <laughs> of course, you can't leave two. Come yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had 10 in stock. No, hell no. Yeah. I had all 12. Yeah, no, we got we to gotta drink them until they're gone. There's no point in saving that. <laughs> but it got the dialogue started. The next morning, my brother and I had kind of like, a, hey, man, I know you don't drink, but shit, dude, yeah. let's have another talk. And all my other friends were like, wow, man, let's, uh, what can we do? And, but, I'm going to go to my fantasy football draft again this year in Vegas, and I'm not worried about it. But had it been like the first two weeks of sobriety, first month, first three months, I probably would have said, guys, I'm going to be drafting a dynasty team, but with the internet connection in my own home. Got it, got it, yeah. Well, that's, and that goes right along with setting yourself up for, you know, success, putting yourself in good situations. How'd you be at that point? I understand that's not, you know, the way it is now, but um, that's the kind of things that, that we have to kind of think ahead about. And it takes time to be able to, uh, you know, to kind of think logically like that too. And let me, let me ask you a question. Are, yeah. are you got, I think a, a year, definitely a year, or a couple of years in a sobriety, longer than I am. I remember that. Are you, are there any situations that you, you hear about and you're like, ah, you know, uh, I'm going to be busy that day. You kind of make up some excuse or are you pretty much just like a green light for all? Um, you know, I, um, so so first of all, yes, we're, our sobriety dates are very close. I think you said you have a year coming up on the 7th. Mine is on the 11th. So we're just a couple of days apart. I'll have two years uh, on September That's right. 11th. Um, and as far as the situations, um, you know, the social situations, 
I definitely am comfortable being around when and, until it gets to a certain point. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of good homies that I still have that you know I there's a lot of, there's a lot of friends that I cut off, but there's a lot still that I um, you know am, am good friends with, and I don't see them as much because I don't put myself in those situations often. Every once in a while, I feel like it's okay. Um, I think one thing that's that's um, that's tough for me is being around family a lot of the time because that's your family, you know, and, and, and like we were saying, we, we want to be around our family. We want to do things with our family. And a lot of the time there's alcohol involved when we do that. So I've kind of had to get to, I have kind of had to get to a point where, um, I'm, you know, I've, I've just had to become comfortable with myself. I think, I think that's the biggest thing in, in all honesty, when I, when I really sit here and feel this right now, it's like, I have to be a hundred percent confident in me and know that I'm doing the right thing. And everyone else is living their own lives and what, what they do is their own business. And what I do is, is my choice, you know, to be sober or to not be sober. So I think to really, to answer the question, I'll be in situations, but if it starts getting to a point where I feel uncomfortable, I always have a plan of exit too. Like I'll tell my wife, like, Hey, look, if, uh, if it starts getting a little whatever, and I don't feel good, I just want to let you know, you know, of course I'll tell you, but I'm going to take off and I'm, I'm going to leave and I'll come back and get you or, you know, or, or you can, um, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out in other words. So I think having that exit plan, that's something that I was taught early on, uh, when I got sober and that's been a huge benefit to kind of keep in the back of my mind, have that card in the back of my pocket to always play. If I do start feeling uncomfortable. The extra exit strategy is key. You've got to always have a vehicle or always have just that, a plan to get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. Yes. Um, damn, dude, this sometimes talking about this shit, it's just crazy, huh? Do you ever just sit back and you're just like, holy fuck, like what, like what is going on? And it's all, it's all good feelings and stuff. But as men, we're not taught to sit and communicate and talk about our, you know, how we feel and you know what, that's, that's shit that was like blacklisted when we were young, you know, at least for me, it was, we didn't talk about that kind of stuff. And what a relief it is to be able to sit here as a grown man and just talk to another grown man who's, you know, we've both been through some shit in different parts and different parts of the world. And we can actually communicate, you know, on a, on a, on a clean level, I guess. It's not that drunk talk when you meet a guy and you talk for three hours about fucking steel from China that you know nothing about, but you're a goddamn expert in it. You know, you know, those conversations (laughs) I've had plenty of them. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing. And I guess what I'm getting at is I just want to speak to, to the listeners out there is that this sobriety thing, no, it's not easy. Um, it takes a lot of work, dedication, and you got to put your full heart into it and you got to want it. But I mean, it's, it's the most beautiful thing. If you can kind of wrap your head and get in touch with it. And what you said, it takes a lot of work. W-R-K, that word has a lot of parameters around it that are frowned upon. But this, what we're doing right now, Shane, is is work and recovery. But I don't look at this as work. This is a great conversation. But this is what it looks like in recovery right now. And this is a priority. I've had this call on my schedule. And there have been other things that have popped up, right? Beach volleyball is going on right now. And it wasn't even a question. No, it wasn't, Shane. It wasn't even a question if I'm going to bump this. That's kind of a pun intended. I'm not going to bump that spike this podcast interview, right? (laughs) 
Because that is a priority. Because if you start doing that, then all slips, right? And this is my work. A lot of people think, oh, you got to work at it and recovery is like pen to paper, which does happen, but it's not that bad. Right now, what we're doing, this is this is the 12th step, of pretty, or the last step of pretty much any 12-step program is working with other alcoholics. It, it's yep. really an incredible thing. It is. It is. And, and, and so one of the things that I just, I just kind of thought of too, is we talk about finding something positive, something, um, a a different hobby. We all know that we were very good at our hobby, um, of drinking and partying. So when we find something that we're really, truly passionate about that we can kind of put in place of that, that's fun, that really helps us to stay on this, on this path of, um, you know, being clean and being sober. And that kind of leads me into, uh, the recovery elevator. And I'm curious as to how, um, how this idea came about for you and, um, you know, what, what kind of drove you to say, you know what, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to do it. Sure. There are about five, five important crucial things that actually maybe launched the whole concept of recovery elevator. And one of them, the, the largest one was accountability. I'd wake up in the morning and be like, man, I feel like shit and I am done drinking. And then seven hours later, guess what I'm doing? I'm drinking in a lawn chair and I'm drunk. So mm-hmm. I could be unaccountable to myself, but if I, I was like, I need more accountability. If I make a podcast where I explain what's going on to the listeners, it's going to be pretty hard for me to successfully pull off a podcast about being sober while being shit-faced. It just won't work. right? And the other one, this was just, it was like a light bulb went off. We have AA meetings where, where people speak, right? And I went into this meeting and this girl, I don't, I've, I've never met her, but she's up there and she's not on my age. And, 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 and she's, and she's talking like, she's like, why me? Why am I in this room? And I'm thinking like, yeah, girl, you preach on sister. I'm right there with you. Why am I in this chair too? I'm thinking poor me. Right. Yeah. And then she flipped it. She's like, why me? why am I in here? And there are so many other alcoholics out there struggling, still fighting in the middle of their addiction. And I was like, I was just gripping my chair. I was like, wait a second. What is she getting at? And she's like, we are the lucky ones in this room. If you don't know it, you better realize it real quick. And I did realize it real quick because it light, a light bulb went out. I was like, holy shit. She's right. No matter how much I don't want to be here. I'm so but I would still would rather be there instead of out drinking and, and, and just doing that insanity thing. So it was at that moment where I was like, you know what? I went through so much bullshit to get to this point. If I could help somebody get to that point a little bit quicker and not let their elevator get so far down, then let's do it. Right. And if a couple of friends find out I'm an alcoholic or a couple of girls find out they don't want to talk to me or date me because I'm an alcoholic, well then fuck it. It doesn't matter because what's really worth it and priority number one is for me staying sober. And if I can help a couple other people out in their sobriety as well, all worth it. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's the, that's the key right there is when we get into, into recovery and we learn how to deal with our own emotions, we also learn that to get out of our heads and to get out of those emotions, one way we can do that is by helping others. Um, so Obviously, both of us have a podcast, and I think we're kind of in the same boat on that. Um, you know, being able to reach out and, and number one, take responsibility for who I am and and what I am and the, the man that I am, um, and then being able to share these experiences with the hopes that 
you know, it, it may help someone out there. Someone can relate to it. That's a huge, um, it's a huge kind of responsibility. And, and what I'm getting at, I wanted to ask you too, is there's been times for me when I'm like, ah, fuck it. I should just get fucked up right now. Who gives a shit? I mean, it doesn't happen as often anymore, but it still does occasionally. And I got to tell you, first and foremost is my kids and my wife. And right behind that, the other thing that stops me is the podcast and, and just this, this work and this project and this passion that I've been able to put into this operation. Um, it, it really does help to keep me grounded and to keep my mind on the path that I want to be on. So I, I'm, I'm assuming that that's probably pretty similar as to what you know, you've dealt with and what, what you've caught or what you do on a daily basis too, with your podcast and point being real quick is folks find something that you love, find something that you're passionate about. It doesn't have to be a podcast. It be whatever the hell it is, but immerse yourself in that something positive, something clear, something, something helpful that you can really do, um, to make yourself feel fulfilled because the material shit, it, it, that's not going to fulfill you. You're 100% correct, and fulfillment out of this material shit, it's not going to happen. But being fulfilled in early sobriety, gosh, that's that's a tough one because when I quit drinking on September 7th and really started to address everything, I thought it was going to come a lot faster. But it wasn't until like month three or four where I did start to get enjoyment out of just simple activities. What it was and what it is for everybody in early sobriety, it takes a lot of courage now, let's get the definition of courage defined first. People think courage, like, oh, that guy has no fear. He's just he's just going to do it. He's doing it, right? But courage, actually, is having the courage to face your fears. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was in early sobriety for me. I was terrified, but I was able to face these daily emotions, these daily life terms that you just simply drink away. You just disappear from them because the bottle will help you disappear. So it is, for me, the first couple months, it was just facing all of these fears that I was terrified to face. And then one day, I wasn't quite as fearful of facing these fears. And the next day, a little less fearful than the day before. Then, holy shit, about two months in, I started to enjoy something. I woke up, and I was like, man, what is wrong? Like, today doesn't suck. Like, what? What what is going on? Like the alarm went off and I don't want to throw it across the room and I don't want to hide in my bed till noon. What in the hell is going on? And it didn't happen overnight and it was a slow transition. And you said something about exit strategy with your podcast and mine is the same thing. And I think we both had our stars in line when we made this. I don't have an exit strategy when it comes to drinking because I don't want to ever relapse. I'm taking it one day at a time. But I'm I'm creating a system of accountability where it's like, shit, Monday morning I got a podcast coming out. And I do love doing this, but it forces me to get behind a microphone and talk with guys like you, Shane, right? Because that, the whole sobriety thing, after three, four months, our mind, our disease is like, oh, man, we got this. And what's yeah. going to get swept under the rug when we get busy, when beach volleyball invites get out, you know, get sent out? It's it's our sobriety. We're just going to be like, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good. I got four or five months. I got nine months. I got this. But you don't. You never will, and you don't. It's not a bad thing. But you just always got to keep it a priority. So, Paul, we we got a few more minutes here. Um, what what are some of the things that you do uh, on a daily basis that you can share with, um, with someone out there that's listening right now that may be, you know, contemplating, uh, trying to quit drinking. 
I I learned to embrace the case of the buckets, but a different case of buckets. So last last year or before, I'd be like, "Bucket, I'm drinking." Mm-hmm. Today, I almost reached that point of saying, "Bucket, not that I'm drinking, but just saying, Bucket, this is not worth it. I am risking my sobriety. I'm out." And I've had those a couple of those in the last month where I'm opening up a new business at the mall, and today it was about that point where you just you you can't forget what's the most important thing you just got i'd say oh fuck it i'm out just put my i'll leave my phone i'll leave my phone grab my dog grab a leash put some sunglasses on i just go just go for a walk <laughs> so yeah. that's something i'm just being more cognizant of these signs because a relapse will happen way before you take that first drink do you have um, a favorite uh, book or any literature that you that you're reading right now or that you've read uh, or listen to. I do audiobooks myself because my attention span is is so shitty on reading. But anything that you can share that you that you you really like and that's really helped you. On January first, two thousand ten, I sat in an uncomfortable chair, listened to the Owl City soundtrack, and I listened. I read Beyond the Influence by Catherine Ketchum, and it just walks you through everything about like, oh shit, I am an alcoholic. <laughs> it's a pretty good book. Um, and what's one piece of advice you could give someone out there right now, um, who's, who's really, really struggling? Like, what's the one thing you could tell them? Yeah. That whole Nike guy, that whole, just do it. You know, that whole no pain game, no pain, no gain. Yeah. That guy was not an alcoholic, right? Just take all those social norms and social stigmas. It's shit. It's bullshit, right? Just do it. Like you were saying earlier, we are taught to just bottle up our emotions and not give up and just keep fighting. That shit will kill you, right? If you're an alcoholic and if you're even thinking that you might be an alcoholic, there's probably a good indication you are an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Just address it fast, right? Don't don't keep going down the road. Don't just do it. Just give up. (laughs) It's hard to say, actually. Just give up. But I, but I love the just do it too because it's simple and it's right to the point. Just do it. Quit talking about it and do it. Um, where where can listeners find you, Paul? Recoveryelevator.com is the website. And I also, just like you, have a podcast called Recovery Elevator Searchable on iTunes. That's the best way to get a hold of me. You can also, in, you can also email me, info at recoveryelevator.com if you want to get in touch. Paul, thank you so much for coming on today. I greatly appreciate it. Jane, what a great way to end my June 17th. Thank you so much for having me. This has been another episode of That Sober Guy Podcast on Recovery Radio with Shane Raymond. For more information, visit www.thatsoberguy.com or you can email Shane at sobriety at thatsoberguy.com. Thanks again for listening and enjoy a sober, healthy, happy life.